Welcome to the GDV Podcast. I'm Scott Woodard, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Arnold T. Blumberg. Hello. And uh, as we creep into the Halloween season, we thought that we'd take a look at one of our favorite film directors, and that is John Carpenter. Oh, absolutely. The Prince of Darkness. The Prince of Darkness. Certainly one of the architects of mutually of our childhood, I would think, in terms of horror filmmaking. So uh, 100% agree with the, with you on that one, that's for sure. Absolutely. And one of the things we also wanted to do, particularly given that we want to have a decent length episode, and certainly <laughs> this is a man that has a huge um, roster of films that we could easily spend an entire episode talking about every individual one, we've picked a few that we're going to focus on, uh, which interestingly enough, without really intending to, also boiled down to a couple uh, extra uh, and then his famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, Apocalypse Trilogy, in which every film is theoretically the end of the world in that film. So we have five movies that we've picked out to delve into a little bit. You could say there's actually a couple other ones that are apocalypse, would fit into the Apocalypse Trilogy. but Oh, sure. Absolutely. It's just that he seems to always go on record with these three. It doesn't mean that the others couldn't fit equally well. But yeah, he's he's always characterize these three in particular as the ones where the movie begins and the world is doomed, which is always a lovely way to spend an evening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't we start uh, with one of his earlier films then, and we can kind of maybe work work up chronologically. Sure. Um, So I would assume we would start with Halloween. Halloween. There's no better movie to talk about. We're going into this season. It's so incredibly obvious. How could we avoid it? All right. And it's great film. Perfect. End of show. That's it. (laughs) I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. (laughs) I think he'll come back. Yeah, it doesn't get much better than Halloween for uh, the, I mean, as a slasher film, if you could call it that, because I think it, in many ways it sort of transcends the, the definition. I think uh, so. I mean, it, it's like many things, there's a lot of history there where if you really delve into it, certainly Black Christmas predates Halloween. And then, of sure. course, the Giallo predates Black Christmas. And then, but Halloween is certainly the movie that, for all intents and purposes, cemented the idea of the slasher at that point, which then led to all the copycat films that would follow well into the 1980s. But for me, Michael Myers remains my all time favorite iconic character from that particular corner of horror. No one, no character to me has ever had the impact that Michael had on me. And I can't really entirely explain why it is, although I have some ideas about why he stands out for me. Well, go ahead. Well, one of them is, is the same reason why I often say I prefer slow zombies to fast zombies, although I could certainly enjoy a fast zombie story too, which is that with Michael, unlike most of the other characters, 
whether it's Leatherface or Freddy Krueger, Jason, all those. Michael is a character who, at least initially, there is no explanation for why he is the way he is. He's a suburban middle-class kid, which, by the way, not to go on a tangent immediately, but is one of the reasons why Rob Zombie's remake is woefully inept and (laughs) in no way understands the very character it's trying to pay homage to. But he's a regular kid, and yet one day goes insane, kills his sister, and there is no reason for it. And not having any reason is what makes Michael so terrifying because it's not about someone where, oh, oh, it's child abuse. Oh, it's a horrible background. Oh, he's possessed. No, he's just an ordinary kid and one day something broke. And if that can happen, that's true horror because that can happen to anybody. And, right. and the other reason I always liked Michael is the fact that he's always walking, which is not technically true because you watch the first movie, he actually jogs along a little bit pretty well in a couple of parts. <laughs> but more or less, he's iconic for walking deliberately, slowly. And the idea is something that's slow and yet absolutely seems to know that it is going to get you is more horrifying than something that's chasing you down. Mm-hmm. So Michael is relentless. He's, and I think they have talked many times about he's sort of the shark of the horror icons. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can totally see that. And even has the blank black eyes. Exactly. Like a doll's eyes. And, and, (laughs) and that's the thing. Donald Pleasance has a little speech in the movie. That's very much like a counterpoint to Quint's speech in Jaws, Mm -hmm. the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. It's the same thing. So yeah, he's a shark. He's absolutely inescapable. There is no fathoming what's going on inside his head and he's going to get you. Yeah, in a, in an almost animal-like way as well. Yeah. He's not a killer who's calling you and sen- you know sending messages to you saying, this is what I'm going to do and this is revenge for something that you did. And Initially, he's just this machine. He's just a machine. And the thing is, I, and it's one of those weird things, I love the character of Michael Myers. Halloween series is always my favorite of that all those particular movies of that time. And yet... To be perfectly honest, the first one I actually saw was Halloween 2. And I know that Halloween 2 has a lot of problems, and there are a lot of things about it you can pick at. But I saw Halloween 2 first as a kid Hmm. around 1981. It was one of the first videotapes I ever rented when videotape stores first opened. And we had one locally, and I saw the picture of the pumpkin with the skull that was the Halloween 2 cover. So I went back to the original Halloween after seeing 2. And so two, in a way, colors a lot of my opinion of the character, because when you really watch the first Halloween, one of the crucial elements of it is there really isn't any backstory there. Everybody after the fact talks about, oh, well, you know, he's her brother and he's coming back to finish the job. Yeah, but that's not in the first movie. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that was another attack on Rob Zombie. In his remake of the first Halloween, he immediately follows with the sister thing. The first Halloween doesn't have that. That was an invention of the second film. So in the first movie, there's no reason why he's doing what he's doing, except that he's come home to keep doing it. And there's also Mm -hmm. not a lot of reason in the first movie why he's anything other than a human being. There's very little in the movie that suggests there's something supernatural going on, although there are a couple little things. There's the fact that he can drive when, when he's been in the institution the whole time and and Loomis makes the reference to the fact that he was doing very well last night driving when there's mm-hmm. no way he could be doing that. That's a little creepy. And then, of course, the infamous end that led to so many copycat endings, which is he disappears at the end after being shot six times. But You could say his super strength, too. Yeah, I mean, if yeah. you wanted to go into But otherwise, he's just a guy, and he's just 
broken and that's all it is. And it's just, it's amazing piece of work that movie. And then there's so much great character work in it, which a lot of that is Deborah Hill's writing. Yeah. You know, like famously, and certainly anybody who knows, knows she handled the girls in the script and Carpenter handled all of Loomis's huge mythos <laughs> speeches, you know, and it's great. You know, it just yeah. works great. A perfect pairing right there. Yeah. I wanted to mention, uh, because I was just, just reminded of it when we were talking, when I mentioned the thing about that he's an animal or we were talking about that it's, he's sort of that animalistic quality. And there's that great scene, of course, when he stabs the guy and then cocks his head to the side. Oh, oh. And Nicholas Myers even, I think, gone on record as saying that it was, it was, he was basically acting like a dog. Yeah. Like, you know, looking at this, the damage that he's done. You mean, but, you mean Nick Castle? Yeah, like, why did I say Nick Meyer? Because <laughs> he's Myers, Michael Myers. Yeah, that's true. Um, Michael Myers. Yeah. Castle, yeah. yeah, it For is sure. animal behavior. It's dog behavior. And that's one right. That's one of the things that also stuck with me immediately. I always remembered that, that many of the later films then continued to pick up on the, the cocked head thing. And in a way, also gives you that weird childlike feel to him. Like he's, some people have always characterized it as he's admiring his work. Mm-hmm. I've always kind of looked at it like, he looks like he's confused. Like he doesn't yeah. quite know what's going on, which is like, why is his play thing no, no longer? Yeah. It's, you know, moving. It's really, really creepy. And of course they, another thing too, we can't, can't bypass without saying, because it's the animal thing. There's the fact that you have a character who, unlike a character, and of course, Jason's another one who's silent. Um, but, and and Leatherface doesn't speak. Very few of them do, actually, when you think about it. Freddy's one of the only icons of this particular genre really gets in there and quips all the time. But there's so little to get any insight into what Michael Myers is thinking except for his behavior. And yet, one of the things I've always found fascinating and I also enjoy about the character is he seems like he's a machine, he's a shark, occasionally has his childlike component, but he also weirdly will suddenly develop an incredible sense of humor <laughs> And one of those moments that certainly many of the other films then again pick up on is when he comes back to PJ Souls with the sheet and the glasses on. Yeah. <laughs> Always seems a little out of place. Yeah, but, but it's, it's like classic. It's an icon. Yeah, and it's like he's gonna take his time this time. He's going to let her think <laughs> that he's the boyfriend. Why is he doing that? It doesn't make any sense with anything else he's doing. It's almost like he's enjoying the misdirection. Unless, unless it's uh, it's sort of that playful kid again. Yes, yes. I'm look. I'm dressing up like a spooky ghost. And he does that in several other sequels. And and I'm a big fan of a lot of the movies, even some of the later ones. That a lot of people think really terrible. And and yes, I certainly they're they're not iconic and classic like the original, but I still enjoy them. And there are a lot of moments in some of the later sequels that continue that thread too. That he'll have these weird moments where he decides to masquerade. <laughs> as a character and just play that out for a little bit first and it's <laughs> it wasn't enough that he dressed up like william shatner exactly i guess we should talk about that too <laughs> i think we should for the few people who don't know he's william shatner because that's the, the the very first mask was a store-bought 1975 Post, i think it was a william shatner mm-hmm. mask that they painted white shaved the sideburns off cut the eye holes a little wider and not only created this incredible image that would define the character forever, but also frustrated all of us who grew up as fans for the rest of our lives because a, they could never get the damn mask right again ever. And nope. Any sequel. 
And two, it's virtually impossible to find a really good one when you want to, when you want to say own one. Yeah. And I remember as a kid in the 80s uh, on one of our family trips to Walt Disney World going into the Magic Store on Main Street and seeing uh, Michael Myers' a shape mask. It was the only one that was commercially available at the time. And it did not really look like him, but it was as close as you could get. And I I argued very strongly for buying that. And that was something <laughs> I brought home from that trip. And I loved that mask. Yeah. And there's a huge um, – and we'll probably, we probably should provide some show links uh, to this because I'll, I'll look them up because uh, there's quite a huge and continuing to thrive um, – market of unofficial masks that have been sold over the years by a variety of companies that have painstakingly tried to recreate the various looks of Michael from the different films, particularly the first two. Um, And for me being almost a fan originally of the second one, it's the Dick Warlock mask um, that frequently comes up as one everybody most remembers, particularly the image of him in two with the blood dripping down from both eyes, Mm -hmm. the tears of blood look. And, um, and you can find those from a few companies, some of which have actually tried to work from original copies or molds. Uh, but it's quite a little interesting collector aftermarket in the Michael Myers mask community. And there are a lot of people out there. Yeah, and if anybody got the mask wrong, it was Rob Zombie. But <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot that's wrong. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, and, and not only that, I guess since we're, since it's about being a tribute to Carpenter, we should probably talk about another aspect of Halloween is that it's not as violent as people always remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a lot of these classic horror movies, a classic, you know, like for some of us growing up, classic would immediately bring to mind like universal movies from the 30s or 40s. We're talking classic, like 70s and 80s. Um, they're not as violent as people remember. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not as violent as people remember. There's actually not nearly as much in there as people seem to think. It's the later ones that did that. The first yeah. Halloween is relatively bloodless. Um, the violence is there, but a lot of it is in shadow or suggested. Uh, and his direction is also very important. If we're talking about him as a director and a storyteller, the direction in Halloween is wonderful in that He's not the one to have invented it, but he certainly created a look that a lot of people then copied from that, which is the whole POV concept of the killer and so many over-the-shoulder shots, including some really long ones. I guess it also comes down to editing, too. I always think of the scene where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, where Laurie's walking down the street, one of the side streets in the neighborhood and singing her song, you know, Wish I Had You All Alone. And he steps into view, and you can only see this if you see the widescreen version. On television, they actually ruined this shot. We've talked in past episodes about pan and scan. This is ruined on television, where you see the shoulder of him and hear his breathing, and it just stays on her and his shoulder for a long time. Hmm. He's just watching while she's singing and walking away. It's more disturbing than a scene involving him actually attacking somebody. Just beautiful direction and editing in the movie. G to V. (laughs) Do you like movies? Well, let me make you an offer that you can't refuse. Have you ever found yourself standing at the local Cineplex with that smell of freshly buttered popcorn wafting through your nostrils, wondering if that new Hugh Jackman movie is really worth your time? 
Or have you ever lamented about that time you spent scouring the vast expanse of the internet for movie and DVD release dates when, let's be honest, you'd rather be leveling up your troll hunter, working on the great American novel, or even watching kitten videos? Oh yes, I said kitten videos. I will do the work for you. All I ask is 15 to 30 minutes of your time every Tuesday. My name is Michael Faulkner, and every Tuesday is showtime at the Weekly Plex, your audio guide to what's new at the box office, how the top ten fared over the weekend, and what's coming to your home theater on DVD and Blu-ray. You can find the Weekly Plex on the Chronic Rift Network at www.chronicrift.com, along with a plethora of other podcasts that explore the culture in pop culture. The Weekly Plex, brought to you by the Chronic Rift. Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the theater. That's a wrap! Well, it's definitely a favorite film of mine, and a couple of interesting things from um, my past. When I was in high school, actually when I was in junior high school, uh, when the, I'm, I'm trying to think now when that would have been, oh, early 80s, I guess, <laughs> dating myself. Um, but actually, the uh, the high school students, and they probably were seniors, I think, at the time, they actually did a, a Halloween short film. Oh, okay. Um, I can't, boy, I really wish I could remember what they had. It had a subtitle, and it was, here's, okay, here's an amusing thing. It was Halloween 3. <laughs> Because it was before Halloween 3 had been released. Sure. Which, of course, has nothing to do with Michael Myers. Um, but anyway, so they called it Halloween 3, and I can't remember what the subtitle was. And they they screened it in the, the high school auditorium. And I was such a fan of the original, and I'm sure I had seen two by then, that um, a friend of mine and I, I don't know how we were able to accomplish this, because it was obviously, we had to go over to the high school. We were in a separate building in junior high. But somehow we were able to get into the screening and go see it. And uh, I remember I had some, you know, I had some good death scenes and a lot of it was in shadow. And it, I think it paid a lot of homages to, to Carpenter's style mm-hmm. for a high school movie, high school short film. I, I seem to recall it being pretty decent. So mm-hmm. that was kind of a fun thing from my childhood. So it was sort of like seeing familiar areas with Michael Myers walking around them. Maybe that had more of a personal, uh, I got more of a personal response from the, from that. Uh, but then jumping ahead many, many years, when I lived in L.A., it was right around the time they released a special edition of Halloween on DVD. And I can't remember if it was the there, 25th anniversary. There, there was a time where I think Anchor Bay was putting out a new edition of Halloween every five yeah. months. So you, yeah. You, yeah, by the time it was like one of the, some of these old comedy sketches where, you know, you'd get it in the mail and it would come with a commercial coming soon. The next edition <laughs> of Halloween. Well, this this would have been for the 25th anniversary edition mm-hmm. that was coming out. And uh, I was lucky enough to get uh, a ticket to a uh, special screening that they had at the Egyptian Theater mm. you know, on Hollywood Boulevard. And everybody was there, uh, except for John Carpenter, who I think at the time might have been off working on Ghosts of Mars. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis was there. PJ Souls was there. Um, Nick Castle was there. Right. <laughs> I mean, everybody was there. Awesome. It, was a, it was a great, uh, great lineup. And uh, it was the early days of cell phones. And I'll never forget that Jamie Lee Curtis was so thrilled because she had the Halloween theme as her ringtone. <laughs> and uh, she was she was very, very excited and saying, you know, nobody has this. And all of a sudden, another person played in the <laughs> audience. And she said, shut up. She something. was in the wrong place for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> if anyone was going to have it, they were going to be in that room. And it wasn't going to be you, Jamie. It was one of those uh, things, too, where it was always nice to see when it got to that point, particularly when they did H2O and then the one right after it where for perfectly reasonable reasons. I mean, fans have reaction to it sometimes that are a little unrealistic because sometimes these people, they 
either need to career-wise or just want to get away from things that they become so associated with. I know there were years where she wasn't necessarily very active in associating with it all that much. Maybe not mm-hmm. avoiding it, but not... And then she really just seemed to... She embraced it again naturally when she was doing the 20th anniversary stuff. Right. Um, but it seems like as she'd gotten older, too, it's like, okay, you know, I'm I'm cool with it now. As so many of them are, you know, eventually. It's like, all right, well, you know, talk about it more often. And that's always nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of times it's it's their agent or their man, manager telling them to distance <laughs> themselves, you know. Well, yeah. you want to get roles in comedies and, yeah. in, you know, family films. And it's like, right. but this started my career. Yeah. I mean, you have to, yeah. you have to be proud of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and when something achieves a level like Halloween does, and think, just think about it on the most fundamental level. Here we are talking. It's our, I think it's, well, it's my favorite holiday of the year. Is your favorite holiday of the year? Uh, yes. Okay. I, I just wanted to check to make sure. But, uh, <laughs> no, St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, exactly. Sukkus. Never mind. Three people will get that. Anyway, <laughs> um, definitely my favorite time of the year. And like we said right at the top of this, an obvious movie to delve into for that. But when you think about it, how amazing it is to be able to do the movie that that basically owns Halloween. Yeah. That nobody had done that first. Nobody had taken the title. And uh, I do actually, just as a side note, want to give credit to one movie recently in a few, that became quite a, a big deal on the internet, mainly because it seemed to struggle for so long to get released. It was completed many years earlier which is an anthology film called Trick or Treat, which I finally saw and I think is really good. But it's like the rare movie that actually dares to tread again on Halloween, which feels like, well, why do that? Because it's already been done. But there's no reason to avoid it necessarily. But certainly Halloween, the film, really sews up the holiday and and owns it. And it's just become something that anytime he... Over and over again, every year Halloween comes along, it feels like, well, you have to see that, you know, for sure, at least the first mm-hmm. one. And I revisit it constantly. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guarantee it's going to be running throughout the, the entire month. Sure. But definitely a classic and definitely, uh, yeah, uh, a film that certainly got me. Well, I'm, I'm not going to say into the genre because I was already watching that stuff. Sure. But uh, uh, certainly into maybe a different style that I wasn't familiar with because prior to that it had, it had been Toho films and universal monster movies and, you know, 50 sci-fi films. And then suddenly I get Halloween. I think that's probably exactly what I would say too. I, th- I think exactly the same thing. I can't think of any other movie that did that for me and it would, and it's all the same categories you just mentioned too. That's it. It was all that. And then suddenly Halloween, it's like, wow, you can do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that chain, and of course, Donald Pleasance, uh, you know, who then becomes this towering figure that you follow through many other examples of, uh, including one, we'll, another film we'll talk about soon, too. But why don't we move on then to uh, just a couple of years after the release of Halloween uh, to John Carpenter's The Fog. This is KB Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here, and let me be the first to wish Antonio Bay a happy birthday. We're 100 years old today, and keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unknown came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Oh, Jesus. Oh, now, you know, this really, I have to say, 
is my favorite John Carpenter movie. I'm not 100% sure I could have said that with such certainty years ago, but over the years, as much as I love Halloween and Michael Myers and that series, the more I've revisited The Fog, which is over and over and over again, the more that's really become my favorite Carpenter movie. I think The Fog is wonderful. I can watch that over and over again. It's one of my go-to movies. It's okay. Eh, well, <laughs> I think we're done here. <laughs> Podcast no, over. Be- well, no, before we go into that, uh, before I, I you know, level any criticisms, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about The Fog and what makes it such a great film in your eyes? You know, it's really weird because I know we're going to talk about it, and, and I've certainly talked about The Fog with other people over the years, but... It's hard for me to really nail down exactly what it is. It's, it's one of those things. There's an atmosphere to it. I love the music. Uh, I remember is another thing that's also a very powerful childhood thing is that right before the era of videotapes, one of the things I did as a kid very often was tape TV shows and movies on audio tape, putting the, putting the tape recorder right next to the television. It was the only way to save stuff. I, this, we didn't even have videotape yet. And I was. I did the same thing. And I had Sertron <laughs> tapes. It was Sertron uh, tapes, and uh, and I still have them. Um, and I taped every Peanuts special. The first, my <laughs> first version of the the Halloween special is a Sertron audio tape of the Halloween. And that's another reason why, for some things that I loved as a kid, I remember the audio and the sound of it burned into my brain in a way that even the visuals aren't because I used to re-listen. I used to listen to him over and over again. And the fog was one of them. And I had, and I, I made like a little tape where I just cut out like the scene where Andy's running back home. And it's that perfect extended version of the theme playing while the sun is rising over their house. And, and I have that clip that starts with him finding the piece of driftwood from the Elizabeth Dane. And I loved that music. And in some ways, I'd also say I think Carpenter's The Fog music is actually superior to the to Halloween theme. And I know that might sound like blasphemy. Halloween theme is amazing. It's one of the most perfect things ever composed in horror music. But I think his music in The Fog is a little more complex. It has melancholy to it. It has more emotion. It's beautiful. And I don't know what else it is. Uh, is it the zombie pirate ghosts or the pirate ghost zombies or the ghost zombie <laughs> pirates? I do, is it Tom Atkins who uh, is in the middle of his run of being the coolest, beefy, weird-looking guy in any movie ever <laughs> who can bed every woman that he meets instantly with no trouble whatsoever? I mean, this guy is amazing. He looks like Tom Atkins. He doesn't look like Brad Pitt. <laughs> And yet, like in Halloween 3, for instance, Stacey Nelkin shows up and you're watching this movie and you're thinking, Stacey, you're not going to. And no, she actually does. And and then, on, and then you know, J.B. Lee Curtis. J.B. Lee Curtis, yeah. And meets her. And I love the bit where they're already in bed. They're already finished the first time. And that's when he asks, what's your name? Yeah. And you're thinking, wow, this really is the 70s, isn't it? I mean, it's the 80s <laughs> technically, but yeah. I don't know. It's it's a weird eclectic cast that ranges all across the board. Everybody from Janet Lee to so many Carpenter, what by then were becoming Carpenter regulars. It has the phenomenal opening with John Houseman, which is like every campfire story you'd ever want to hear. And I don't know. It's, it's it's so hard to like sum up what it is. But I know that 
out of a very few movies, there are some movies I know I'll be watching for the rest of my life over and over and over again, and The Fog's one of them. So why don't you say now what's wrong with it? <laughs> I was just gonna, you know what I was just thinking about was um, how some elements of that film got parodied in uh, that um, Hudson Brothers movie. Um, oh, God, what was the name of it? Oh, God, this is one where we need Collins. Oh, it's so on the tip of my tongue. Call I want to say right it's now. like... Yeah, call us right now if you know the name of the Hudson Brother movie. One eight hundred G to V call. It was called like Berserk or Bedazzled or something like that, and uh, I don't know if you ever saw it. And I, I don't know if I can recommend that you yeah. <laughs> you go and see it if you've never seen it. But there are it's it has a number of horror movie uh, parodies, including parodies of Friday the Thirteenth. Hmm. It even has a guy riding on a bike saying. My name's Ralph, and you're all doomed. Um, it's got uh, a, a sort of a John Houseman uh, character telling this this story about Captain Howdy, and of course, the <laughs> Captain Howdy thing is the ex- Exorcist. It's got, right. I mean, everything is in this movie, but it's a terrible, terrible movie. But when I was growing up, it was kind of a, I don't know, it was sort of that I got the jokes right. because I was also a horror movie fan. Right. So, oh, but I really wish I could remember what it was called. Is it Berserk or Hudson Brothers? It was well, that's Hudson okay. Brothers. We can also put yeah. it on the thing when we. Yeah, you'll find it in the show notes because uh, my my rotting brain is incapable of <laughs> stretching that back up from my past. Uh, okay, no, the only other, th- I mean, ultimately, some of the only criticisms I've ever had are uh, there's a few things that don't make a lot of sense. Oh, there's a lot um, in the fog that doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I still don't quite understand why all the car. Cars rev and the milk jugs fall out of window, out of refrigerators. Yeah. And no, stuff. I, I like that stuff happens, and there's no real connection to what's happening. No, absolutely, I, I'll I'll say right up front. I I love I love that movie so much. I can watch it over and over again. But because of that, it's one of those movies I forgive a lot of things, including the fact that the story actually doesn't logically hold together at all. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm perfectly okay with being able to make fun of that. I mean, first of all, one of the things was it also had a lot of stuff added post production. Uh, to make it a little gorier, and a lot of that also probably um, unbalanced the original approach. The whole poltergeist activity in the beginning makes no sense because it's not something they do. Mm-hmm. Um, the anniversary passes the first night, and yet they also come back the next night. Yeah. So the timing's wrong. Uh, they seem to have a strange shifting set of rules where sometimes it seems they need to be able to knock to get in and sometimes <laughs> it doesn't matter anymore. And, and of course the all time best, which makes zero sense is they're after six people. They get five, they go away. When Blake gets the gold cross, they completely go away and then come all the way back just to get how Holbrook at the end, right? which is just like, ah, oh, we've totally forgot the sixth thing that we were <laughs> supposed to, we left, but we're sorry. We forgot this. And they come all the way back. They're really inept zombie ghost pirates. <laughs> and yet I still am okay with it. So you forgive probably most of the stuff that I would criticize. Well, what else? Well, you've already touched on one thing. Jamie Lee Curtis falling into bed with Tom Atkins. <laughs> That's just wrong on so many levels. <laughs> Apologies to Tom Atkins. Yeah. Um, yeah, that I always felt that that was just so, I don't know, out of the blue and so forced. But like you said, it has sort of that 70s mentality. Yeah. And I'll forgive that. And then she hangs um, out for no reason, you know. 
Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a meta joke about her and Carpenter because her character even has the line where she says at one point something like, you know, bad things happen around me. I'm bad luck. And it's like, yeah, because you're Jamie Lee Curtis and it's a John Carpenter movie. So <laughs> that's probably about it. I mean, I, I still think it's I like the movie a lot. Trust me. Have you not dressed uh, as Blake in the past? Didn't you say you've done? Uh... Never, never done that. No, you haven't. OK, I know. I know you want to this year. Yes, I was considering that. Not sure that'll happen, but yeah. it's a great look. But, the glowing eye look. Yeah. Yeah. No, I suppose I've, I've already touched on it. Just that, that there's a lot of nonsense, I think, in that film that doesn't work. And But I guess if you just go into it for the atmosphere, for the music, uh, Adrian Barbeau's character is great. Yes. although I think it's really interesting the way they, they handle her in the lighthouse and yeah although she does have that is something that i would still criticize though because she goes from zero to 60 basically she has she's separated from all the other the rest of the cast and yet she very quickly and with not a lot of evidence to really support it immediately embraces what's going on and then becomes maniacal about Screaming through the radio, the rest. Of the yeah, she, if anyone's causing yeah. a panic, it's not the fog or the supernatural events. It's her. Yeah, and at the moment where she says, "You know, I hope you'll forgive me, Andy, because I had to stay here to do this." Like, no, you really should be going after your son. I'm sorry, <laughs> you're not forgiven. That's terrible. But yeah, uh, but it's still good. Oh, I still love it. I, I like you know. I just let it go. It is true for me. Fog is atmosphere. It's about revisiting. Uh, a group of characters in a place that feels in a strange way, fun and creepy and great to go back to. And it's anchored by so many great actors and performances that rise above all the silliness. Hal Holbrook's another great example that mm. despite the fact that yes, absolutely. It's a script that does not hold up. It doesn't have the um, iconic impact maybe of Halloween. And yet if it was a choice between the two and what to put on, I would put on the fog every time. And yet, like Halloween, um, it's had a lasting quality because it was also remade. Yes. And I, you know, I don't have as much of a problem with that remake as I do with Rob Zombie's Halloween. The problem with the Halloween remake is that I feel that it's fundamentally tone deaf about the material it's remaking. The fog remake is not great, but it had its moments, and when I saw it, I thought, this feels like a movie where they actually kind of like the movie they're remaking, and they're trying to change it. And they do change a lot of the story in ways that just seem – they add their own level of silliness to it that I would I would argue is even crazier in hmm. terms of the logic of the whole thing. And there's even this weird romance that's added to it. But I don't think it's the worst thing I've ever seen in terms of a remake, and that's – you know, not necessarily damning it with faint praise, obviously. <laughs> Tom Welling was in that, right? Yeah. yeah. To the extent that he's in anything, he does. <laughs> he's standing there. The camera captures him on the set. The Smallville fans out there, sorry. This is G2V. Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks. Cyborgs, a 
Bionic Podcast. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs or subscribe on iTunes. Well, that, okay, that, that covers the fog pretty well. Um, we can then jump a couple more years, and then I know this is one that you and I both absolutely love, and that is The Thing. Oh, The Thing. Twelve men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live. Inside. Where no one can see it. Or hear it. Or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. It takes us over. And it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You know, that's weird. I just said The Fog is my favorite John Carpenter movie. And yet the thing, it's strange. I, I, I'm not sure. Maybe that one. Boy, because <laughs> it's I would say the thing is certainly more quotable. Yeah, um, it's also a movie that is relentless as it is. And with all the stuff that's in it, where you'd think, my God, how could you stand to keep revisiting that? I could easily watch that over and over, too. I guess there is a comfort level to the fog that makes it like slightly higher for me. But the thing is also one of my all time favorite movies with mm-hmm. an astonishing collection of distinctive characters. And that's another thing about that movie that the remake prequel thing, <laughs> this <laughs> thing, thing didn't get right at all. Why all these movies have to be hampered by remakes that, but um, this is terrible because this is going to keep happening. One of the things that makes this movie so successful <laughs> is how every single character in that movie is so clearly and perfectly defined so early in the film. Yeah. You know every guy, and you know what their personality is, and you instantly understand each person as an individual. That's incredible writing and acting and directing the whole package. And and, and a difficult thing to do when you've got a cast as large as that. Right. And a lot of it has to do, and of course his fans certainly delve into it a lot, that is a movie that has what I think is one of the truly great behind-the-scenes features that has been done on it, on its... Um, like DVD and Blu-ray release, a feature that at the time everybody was talking about because it actually runs longer than the film itself. Uh, and and one of the things that was so key probably to making that happen as well as it did is the fact that they spent so much time together in the build-up to principal photography. So you have a bunch of guys that actually spent time with one another and got to know each other's rhythms in the kind of way that real people would so that when they behave with each other, there's all kind of stuff going on there where they're not necessarily consciously acting, but they're familiar with one another. Mm-hmm. And you can say what you want about sometimes acting gets a little overblown you know, the actor studio kind of stuff, but there's some of it that's true because if all acting is behavior, then as an audience, you can pick up on it when people don't really seem comfortable with one another or they're not really friends. And yet right. the, the characters in the thing, everybody feels like they're in sync. And, and Wilford Brimley has worked himself up so much that he wants to get out of the show before he even starts shooting. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> it's so quotable. It certainly has, of course, some of the most amazing effects ever. Not, oh, yeah. not just of its time, but ever. Um, because certainly, I mean, there'll be people that probably argue with us, but, I certainly will never let go of the fact that practical effects are always 
more beneficial than something done with a computer until the day happens where it's virtually indistinguishable. The practical mm-hmm. effect is always going to be better because it's going to look organic. It's going to look real. And that's some of the high watermark effects work in horror, which is not to say that it's all realistic looking either. I mean, like when Norris's head comes tearing off and you've got like green stuff and red and all the, but it's an alien. So how do you know what it's supposed to look like? Right. It looks like a vegetable salad or something. <laughs> it's just, it, but that's, you know, it, in a way, I, you know, as a kid, I always used to think that maybe that was like a little homage too, because it's so different from the original. And yet it looks like plant life. There's parts of it that kind of look like plant life. And it's like, well, maybe there's a little tie back to the fifties there. Well, and I mean, ultimately, and this is just, you know, again, this is just my praising of of practical effects. When you have something on set that your actors can actually see and interact with, you're obviously going to get a far better performance out of them. Sure. Than them just imagining something on a green screen. Sure. Oh, this is a big, horrifying monster. You're really scared. Ooh, act scared. But if they see ooze pouring out of somebody's face... (laughs) And it's two feet away from them. I mean, my God, you're going to obviously have a reaction and a realistic reaction. Well, not only that, as I'm sure you know, because you've probably seen all that stuff, too. And not only that, but you have actual experience. So you probably know more than me. I've made the ooze come out of faces. Yeah, I mean, so you probably know more than me. But there's like the famous thing where they're gathered around the burnt uh, remains. And the actors are all standing around it like dry heaving. And that was all (laughs) real because... As they say in the behind the scenes stuff, those are real because the smell of all the chemicals and the whatever the hell that was, latex and everything, <laughs> was so overwhelming that they were actually wanted to vomit. And that's like that's that's real. So you can't do any better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Wilford Brimley, ladies and gentlemen, the great Wilford Brimley. Oh, I can't say enough wonderful things about that movie. I kill re- you. <laughs> they want to be us. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, if you've never, I, 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 there are. I mean, I know that there are people out there who've never seen the thing, who are probably listening to our podcast. And do yourself a favor and go and watch the original movie, because it, even if you li- like it one tenth of how, the amount that I like it, yeah. uh, you'll be in for a, a treat. It is just, it, it's a wonderful movie. It's not overstating it to say it's one of the truly great achievements in cinema horror ever. Yeah. Um, in And in terms of the movies we've already talked about, it's interesting is Halloween was an original concept that if I remember correctly, the first title was called the babysitter murders. It was based on, Uh, as we briefly mentioned, a tradition that stretched back to Italian giallo films and some other thrillers, but it was an original idea. The Fog was an original script. It was based on the idea of people gathered around a campfire and folklore and exploring some of what that's like in a local community. However, The Thing also has an incredibly solid tradition, uh, a step, well, it has an incredibly solid history in literary horror in that it is an adaptation of John Campbell's Who Goes There. This is now John Carpenter not just creating an original piece of work, but doing something based on a classic piece of literary horror that is entirely about amping up paranoia and fear to the nth degree. How how terrifying is it to be trapped with people where you don't know what's human and what's the thing? 
and it had been done once before in the 50s in what's also a classic movie but is going to be goofy to anybody revisiting it now that doesn't have the context of growing up with it because it is a little sillier. It, mm-hmm. it basically takes the original concept from Campbell's story and reduces him to a single Frankenstein-like humanoid figure played by James Arness, instant, incidentally. Um, and while it's considered a classic, and it inspired Carpenter, obviously, uh, and not just in The Thing, because Adrian Barbeau's character in The Fog has a speech at the end of The Fog where she says to keep you know looking for The Fog, which is an homage to the original Thing's ending of Keep Watching the Skies. So he always had that in his head. But then Carpenter's version of the thing goes back to the original idea of what that story was about. And it's also a movie that completely encapsulates an aspect of horror that we'll probably talk about in the future as well. But that I I don't even mean this as a joke, but is a a version of horror that can really get under your skin because it's body horror. Mm -hmm. It's the idea of the human body invaded. And it's a whole kind of horror that is so... Uh, again, skin crawling and disturbing and unsettling because <laughs> it's about the invasion of us from within. And one of the things I always find fascinating about the thing, and I'm sure you do too, and I know we've talked about it, is you never actually know who's the thing when. Yeah, You eventually know who is the thing most of the time once it reveals itself. But there are moments throughout the film where you don't know when it's actually taken some of them. And there are clues in the movie that suggest that you can be the thing and not even know it yet. Yeah, that's terrifying. And like the Norris character, for instance, is one of them where he appears to have a heart condition and you can't absolutely tell, but there are moments where he's alone. And therefore, if he was the alien, there'd be no reason for him to be mimicking anything. And yet it seems like he isn't aware of it when clearly he must already be it. And, and it's just, you just can't conceive of that level of horror that you don't, you might not even know that you're the thing. And of course it leads to one of the truly great endings of any of Carpenter's films where we're down to our two main heroes with Kurt Russell and, uh, God, I'm blanking Keith David, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And sitting there and not knowing, which one? And of course, one of the great fan games of all time has always been: are are both of them the thing? Is one of them the thing? Are neither of them the thing? And does it even matter? Um, and it's just one of the great final lines in a movie. Uh, but like you mentioned before, it's so quotable. Donald Moffat's line on the sofa is one of the great lines. <laughs> Spend the rest of the summer tied to this. Couch, couch. Um, but yeah, and and some and although I've, I'm often not a fan of jump scares for the sake of it, one of the things you could certainly say about Carpenter is he knows when to use jump scares in a way that are actually crucial to the plot. And mm-hmm. one of the greatest jump scares in any horror movie, I think, is during the blood test sequence. Yeah. And that's one that's not just like, let's throw a cat through a window. It's about, you know... <laughs> This is a turning point moment in the story, and it also gives us a chance to get everybody to jump out of their seats. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you were mentioning uh, Who Goes There, because I actually only read the story for my first time just about two years ago. Yeah. And I was very impressed. I mean, have you read it? Yeah, a long time ago. A long time ago, though. So it's I- incredible to read that story and and really see that, that, that Carpenter's version of the film mm-hmm. is remarkably similar to the stuff that's in that story mm-hmm. and that no, I think it's a novella actually. Yeah. Right. Um, 
but uh, I mean, they talk all about the you know on the the cellular replication and everything. It's all discussed in that original story from what the early fifties. Mm-hmm. Uh, very impressive. Um, that'd be another one I should recommend you check you you track that guy down and read that story. It's terrific. It's always nice to go back to the source material on some of these things. I mean, even if you might not necessarily enjoy it, but if you're watching something and it's that impressive. I think it's always a nice idea that's like, well, look, part of the credit has to go to the source that it's building upon. And that story is a classic of literary horror and certainly worth revisiting. And yeah, I mean, like the 50s one is fun, but it's extremely different. Um, And uh, oh, and I mentioned, you know, it's inspired. It also appears in Halloween. Because it's one of the movies that's there. Oh, that's right. They're watching. They're watching in the marathon. Yeah. The thing from another world. Yeah. So, um, it's funny too, because again, it's, it's all a matter of perspective or perception, I suppose. But, um, uh, my, I remember my father telling me that when he was growing up and he saw the thing from another world, uh, in the theater as a kid, um, he was terrified. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that movie yeah. made qu- quite an impression on him. And, and, uh, but then of course, after he saw Carpenter's, <laughs> nothing compared, and you know now he's an enormous fan of of Carpenter's version. I mean, so. the thing about the fifties, when like I said, is it, it's it's goofy from a modern perspective. You're not going to be able to watch it fret like fresh and get the impact. And yet, it's still if you can put yourself in that mindset, it still has its moments. Like there's the scene of the slow buildup that they don't know where it is and they're looking for it, and they open the door and he's right behind the door. Oh yeah, and it's That's all nice in scene. shadow. So you don't see – you just see the shape of his body. It's a great – and again, that's a great jump scare moment too. It's really a great moment. So it has – it still has impact and it's still a, – a, it's also a classic historically. So – but the Carpenter's a thing is one of those rare times too. And this is actually great. We've been talking all this time and each time we brought up a movie, we've talked about a remake. And and <laughs> and so often it's, it's – um, it's a mistake to fall into the trap of always feeling that remakes are terrible or, right. or, and it's too easy, particularly in fan circles to always gripe about a remake. There's something to be said for the fact that although you may not agree with it, that it's true that a modern audience might not go seek out an older film, but put it out in a new form with actors they're familiar with and it speaks to them and okay, fine. That that's why they do it. And sometimes it does work, but very often remakes don't or they they'd never recapture what's great about the original but that's also subjective but here's an example where we're talking about a movie we both love and we'll be watching over and over again for years to come and carpenter did a remake this is but but not necessarily a remake in quite the same way he went back to the source material too but he also grew up loving that 50s the thing and it obviously filtered into so many of his other movies so here he is doing a remake, and we're saying a remake is one of our favorite horror movies of all time. Mm-hmm. So it can work. It it just depends. And and you mentioned we both talked about a Halloween sort of stepped us up uh, in terms of horror and our awareness of horror. The thing absolutely did that for me in that I remember the very first issue of Fangoria I ever bought was the issue that has Norris on the cover. And I still have it, of course. And mm-hmm. The just seeing the photos in the magazine of that and thinking they could do that in a movie, <laughs> I thought I gotta see this, and I might have seen something on it in Famous Monsters at the time. I don't know, but it, but that was the movie that got me to pick up a Fangoria too. 
Oh, that's great. And that was a whole other level of, my God, I didn't know there was this kind of stuff. <laughs> and uh, I think the, the thing that made me pick up a Fangoria was uh, Fulci Zombie, but oh, Worm Guy was on the cover. Right, but, um, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, one, one thing I did want to also add when you were talking about sequels, uh, uh, remakes rather, um, the thing is always my default whenever people say, you know, remakes always suck. Mm-hmm. And I will, I will always default to, to the thing, number one, and say, no, they don't always suck. Look at the thing. Look at John Carpenter's The Thing. Right. And uh, then I sometimes will say Cronenberg's The Fly. But That's another good example. <laughs> yeah. And, and, of course, that's another show. But if we did, we should do a show about remakes and pick a few. One of the things that you could certainly argue is that in both of these cases, they really are films that make it their own. Mm-hmm. Rather than they certainly aren't playing the same beats, and there's homage moments, but for the most part, they really make it their own and are telling a separate story. It's also the pitfall that happens with the most recent version of the thing, which was a movie that the studio very much wanted to be just another remake, but which the people making it, like us, are huge fans of the Carpenter film and felt like they'd be like like treading on. Uh, hallowed ground and so decided and convinced the studio to have them basically create a prequel that links to carpenters the thing the only problem being it's just not that good and it relies heavily on computer effects not that the effects people wanted it that way and if you go online you can actually find some amazing work that they did with animatronics and practical effects that the studio then cut out at the 11th hour and replaced with cgi and it's yeah, just basically um, it's it's a prequel, but it's really just a, re- a replay of all the same beats and all the same ideas. And it just doesn't need to exist. Hi, I'm Keith Ari DeCandido international best-selling and award-winning author of over 40 novels, as well as comic books, short stories, novellas, and more. I'm also an editor, currently hiring out through Creditorial, a musician, currently percussionist for the Boogie Nights, and a whole lot more. Hear me talk about my writing and my life, and also do readings from my work on my twice-monthly podcast, Dead Kitchen Radio, part of the Chronic Rift Network. For more information, go to chronicrift.com or to deadkitchenradio.mevio.com. Yeah, well, ultimately, uh, clearly, we both uh, are great admirers of that particular film, and uh, it definitely deserves its its spot on the show for us to uh, to highlight for Carpenter's career. Um, now, the next one, uh, again, a couple years later, and it's funny with the. I'm just looking over his list on IMDb of of other films he's directed, and we're doing sort of almost a every other film. Of, of his releases, which is, I yeah, I mean, that. there's a couple, couple gaps, but there are a couple other, you know, in some cases there's maybe two films or, but a lot of them are every other. But, uh, so if we jump a couple ahead and actually we in this case, I'll just tell you what we're skipping. We're skipping Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, and then we're going right to Prince of Darkness. <laughs> proximity has the same dream what is it a secret that can no longer be kept it started a month ago what started a change in the earth and the sky 
his power. Uh, a big one for us to talk about because, of course, uh, Scream, Scream Factory. Mm-hmm. Is that, That's right. They just released the uh, a new Blu-ray uh, that you can now pick up. Um, it's kind of a glut of uh, good Carpenter stuff coming out recently. Yes. But, um, but yeah, the, the brand new Blu-ray, remastered, new special features. Is Do you know if the commentary is new? I'm not sure if I'm that's a new sure. commentary. Or, I think it but, is, but I'm not sure. There's also a John Carpenter commentary, which I have not had a chance to listen to. But you and I both picked up a copy of the Blu-ray, and we've both watched it yeah. and watched all the features. So this one is very fresh in our minds. So let's talk a little bit about Prince of Darkness. And we should also mention, by the way, we're talking about skipping. That in no way means that some of those movies that we're skipping, we don't also love for different oh, God, reasons. No. And, yes. and we'll talk about it some other point. But yeah. um, Prince of Darkness is interesting because it's not one that – as I was growing up, it would be one that I would go to or say, oh, this is this is a Carpenter movie I have to see. And yet, it always felt like it was a little on the periphery. And whenever I would catch it, though, it has a a just a pall of doom hanging over it that always seems so effective. And yet, it's only recently that I've really grown to appreciate it and my opinion of it has gone up. Despite mm-hmm. the fact that I still think that it's an uneven movie, and I don't think it's the best uh, cast, I think one of the things that's also interesting about all the movies we've just talked about is that I think out of every one of them we've talked about, I can't think of necessarily many examples I would point to as weak elements in the ensemble for any of those movies. Maybe right. maybe Janet Lee actually, in The Fog, but never mind. Um <laughs> But uh, this one, I think, doesn't have quite the cohesive ensemble cast that Carpenter often has. There are some standouts and there are some that feel like they're just kind of filling space. Mm-hmm. But there's a mood to this movie that is so relentless and so terrifying in places. And I think it achieves something that happens so rarely, which is to come up with a really interesting and and different take on spiritual mythology and to blend horror and science fiction in that Nigel Neal Quatermass kind of way that Carpenter also loves to play with that just makes it such an incredible singular film that is often overlooked and shouldn't be. People should really give it a shot. It can really give you goosebumps in a lot of scenes in this movie. (laughs) And uh, you just mentioned Quatermass, and of course the film is credited as being written by Martin Quatermass. Martin Quatermass, right. Carpenter's little homage to the uh, the Quatermass character. Yeah. uh, Again, created by Nigel Neal. And if you're not familiar with Quatermass, another one that if you're into the genre, if you're into science fiction, uh, Quatermass is really worth investigating because, not to go into too much detail about him, but uh, Quatermass's influence uh, is still felt today, and if even in the form of Doctor Who, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people will say that Quatermass was sort of a little template. So uh, check out some Quatermass stuff. Not the, not to say there's a lot of it. St- I mean, film wise, you can get the f- the movies, but the original BBC TV shows are are fascinating, and in some cases, at least the first one, if I remember correctly, uh, doesn't even really exist in whole. It's mm-hmm. only in bits and pieces, but uh, lost to history. But uh, yeah, so uh, Prince of Darkness um, definitely has some little. I, I, I agree with you. I think the the whole science fiction horror comes together in very interesting ways. Um, when they start to discuss, you know, that Jesus was an alien, right? 
<laughs> and that that there's stuff here that pre, you know goes back seven million years, or they were able to you know date it to mm-hmm. seven million years. And and there's you know Jesus was what they call it a uh, an alien that resembled human mm-hmm. form or something like that. And he and came to warn us, and the, came to warn us. <laughs> the real reason for the crucifixion was people telling him basically to shut up because they didn't want anybody to know the truth about what <laughs> what the real power dynamics in the universe were. If I'm getting this right, you just watched it, so to tell me yeah. also. Because one of the things that's interesting is it basically is a riff on the idea of God and the devil and the Antichrist, and you have figures in this to represent that, except that it recasts it in a weirdly sci-fi kind of way, in which it says that basically the entire concept of of Judeo-Christian religion that our world has always had was a lie constructed by human beings to hide the fact that there was a true uh, spiritual dynamic in the universe where one side like matter and antimatter. One universe had a god, the other had an anti-god. Now, if I'm following it right, isn't one of the revelations in the movie that we are in fact on the side of evil? Like you you would imagine as human beings that, oh, okay, we're in the universe and then there's this dark mirror universe where the guys in the gold lame and the, the goatees are and that's the, <laughs> the evil antimatter universe. But I think the movie suggests that we are in the evil side and just oh, never known it. I missed that. I'm not sure. That's the way I'm getting it. And one of the things I actually love about this movie too is it has this incredibly complex – thing that it tries to play out this whole idea of everything you know about the religious structure of things is wrong but it doesn't ever give you the full story linearly mm-hmm. and you kind of have to knit it all together as it goes and i think maybe when i was younger that's one of the reasons i resisted the movie it's like it felt like you needed to work a little harder to find what all the bits and pieces were but once you really get into it it's a fascinating thing where you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg about what's actually going on and one of the things that I might be misinterpreting, but that I thought was really fascinating, was that one of the reasons humanity was so keen on hiding all of this is the revelation that we exist on the side where the anti-god is. Okay. And therefore, technically, we're on the bad side of the mirror. And that's not something that human beings would like to live with. Not- now, why would does that mean that the... the um... I mean, what what were they trying to pull? Because she refers to it as what father or whatever. Yeah, so she's technically uh, like the antichrist. She's the son of the antigod or the, right. the offspring of the antigod, which was captured and stored in this canister as a liquid. Yeah. This is also great because Prince of Darkness is a movie where if you sit down, somebody says, "Oh, really? Okay, I've never seen Prince of Darkness. What's it about?" Well. Yeah. Uh, like Halloween would be like, well, he's a kid and he kills his sister and then he comes back in, on Halloween night. Oh, that sounds creepy. What's the yeah. fog? Is Oh, they're pirates, but they're they're ghosts and they come back for revenge. Right. What's Prince of Darkness? Well, it's <laughs> seven million years seven ago. Seven million years ago, the alien Jesus showed up and warned humanity, depending on whether I got this right or not, that, that we're on the side of the matter-antimatter universe that contains an anti-god which has now spawned an offspring, but somehow they figure out a way to create a complex canister that can imprison him as a volume of liquid. How'd they get him into a volume of liquid? Don't stop me right now. Anyway, he's... Why'd they put the lock on the inside? No, stop. So anyway, (laughs) he's this green liquid, and then one day scientists and this priest finds out that all of religion has always been a lie, and something is changing, and he's getting out. Why is he getting out now? Shut up. Doesn't matter. Anyway, so he's getting out. (laughs) 
And and why is the moon and the sun lining up? That's just what it is. If you're going to keep asking me questions, I'm never going to get through it all. And so they all gather in the church, and it's the end of the world. Nothing they do can stop it. And the the, the offspring of the anti-god is going to try to bring the anti-god back over to reality, and all of reality is going to end. That's I can't even follow that. I haven't gotten to the dream part yet. <laughs> That's and then the conversation just degrades from there. Wait, there's a dream being transmitted from the future? There's a dream being transmitted from the future because movies from 1987 and 1999 still sounded really exciting and futuristic. <laughs> and human beings in the future are evidently using tachyons to send a me- tachyon. Stop. Don't even <laughs> send a message back from the same church because apparently he's coming out of the church in 1999. It's the end of the world. Wait a minute. If the offspring is trying to bring the anti-god back in 1987. Why would he be stepping out of the church in 1999? If you're going to keep asking me questions, I'm never going to be able to finish the story. <laughs> oh, God. So you think the fog doesn't make sense. Yeah. But that's but yet there's 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 sort of this veneer of science and veneer of logic and you know so that's really it doesn't bother you when you watch it no that's important really it's it's yeah. important to say that sometimes storytelling you know there's and and we've often talked both privately and and maybe a little bit on this at this point about how important it is to have some kind of internal logic and in storytelling doesn't necessarily mean that it always has to make sense. If everyone in the story has the conviction of it making sense, Prince of Darkness is a story that I don't feel necessarily all hangs together either, but it gives you enough to suggest that there's a structure here that you can go, okay, I'll, I'll go with that. I'll buy, right. I'll buy that. And it's also, like I said before, it's just, it has such relentless atmosphere that this is truly the end times that it really feels claustrophobic when you're trapped in that church with them. Like, and it's also, I think, some of the creepiest moments are things like where you see daytime outside and a car going by, and you're thinking the rest of the world is going on, not knowing that it's too late. <laughs> yeah. You know? But, you know, despite all those bits and pieces that you just went over <laughs> beautifully, um, the, fundamentally, the, the story is very si- very simple. Yeah. And I think that's the genius of the way it was structured, is that that when you just get down to it, even if you're not following the whole thing about transmissions and aliens and all that, you can still just say it's oh, it's a battle of good and evil, and they're going to try to to bring this horrible thing over into the world and destroy the world. That's it. That's all you need to know. That's it. And these and these scientists are going to step in and try to stop it. Right. Done. That's all you need. That's it. But but if you want to dig into it, <laughs> then and then the blood starts coming out of your ears. That's right. But. And there's some and some beautiful touches. I mean, having just seen it again, and this wasn't the first time I've I've seen it. Um, it seems to be doing the rounds on some of the movie channels recently as we're getting close to Halloween this year. And I've actually, this is like the third or fourth time I've seen it now in the last few months. And um, has some really wonderful little touches. Probably there's very little that makes me just creep out completely as things to do with bugs. I hate bugs. And the bug man sequence in this is really, really awful. Uh, <laughs> and it has that voice that I think you were you've talked yeah, that, about the, oh, yeah uh not gonna like it and <laughs> when something that's pretty much like a corpse composed entirely of bugs tells you to pray for death i think that's when <laughs> you've got to check out that's the end of it <clears throat> and, previously he told you that it was a bunch of caca yeah exactly pray for death it's like okay um 
But also, I love. I can't. Uh, I feel bad now. I can't think of her name. The one who plays uh, um, Simon and Simon's girlfriend. Oh. <laughs> uh, I can't remember <laughs> her name now. But she's basically the heroine at the end of the story because she does the the great sacrificial leap through the mirror, which does no good to anybody whatsoever. Since, as we see at the end, that doesn't really help. But when I love the little take she has when she everything is going crazy and there's fighting going on outside the hall. Meanwhile, the the other woman who's become possessed by the offspring of the anti-god is reaching through the mirror to get her father back out. And when she looks over and sees that, and here we are back at vomiting and dry heaving. Why is this a theme in this episode? She starts this dry heave kind of thing. And it's like, she's so overwhelmed by the image of this demonic hand coming through that she could barely keep herself together physically. It's a great moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really, and actually, by the way, the hand looks like uh, Tim Curry in Legend. It looks like Legend, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I've always wondered about that. Yeah. Um, one thing that's, that I found really, really, I don't know if it's it's just disturbing, is the one guy uh, who tries to stab himself in the throat with the broken piece uh-huh. of chair. I forget his character's name. But that weird, like, he's giggling, giggling. and crying and just... Like he doesn't completely conform to the the, the takeover that the other people that, do. Like the other ones become zombies and they're working clearly for this darkness and this evil. But he just seems conflicted. That through. is exactly the feeling I've always had every time I've watched it. We are not that we aren't obviously we're sick about a lot of things. Right. <laughs> that is exactly one of the things I have always focused on as being one of the most chilling parts of the movie. And you already described it. He he's taken over. But it doesn't seem to work on him, and there's this weird, constant mix of giggling and crying. Like he's looking at himself, like that scene where he's just staring at himself in the mirror, like, look what I've become. Mm-hmm. Look what's happened to me. And it's so tragic and pathetic. And I do get that impression. It's like, And actually, Stephanie, when we just watched the last time, said maybe he was really religious, because you don't really get to know a lot about him, and I can't remember if there's any dialogue to suggest it. But maybe if he had more faith, he's more resistant to the complete takeover because he, he it, like you said, he doesn't seem to succumb to it. He doesn't become a complete automaton. And he seems so disturbed by himself. It's really right. sad. It's just- well, interestingly, he does. I mean, there are a few things in, that he does uh, early on which imply that he is probably a religious man. But at one point, he takes his crucifix off. Okay. Uh, he's sitting at the table. They're down in the or in the, they're in the lab, and he sort of reluctantly removes the crucifix. Okay. And I don't know what you don't know why. And I don't know if it's supposed to be you know that his faith is breaking down at that point. Probably a good um, thing to think about. Yeah. And of course, you know, with uh, Loomis, you know his his faith is is challenged repeatedly throughout as well. Yeah, Loomis, um, but, same name as his name in Halloween. Donald Pleasance back again. Always <laughs> always a reliable and wonderful presence. Uh, yeah, he's great. from New York, which, of course, is another great moment for him. Yeah. Hey, number one! Uh, <laughs> you're the Duke! You're the Duke! <laughs> hey, number one! Um, but in this, he's also a truly tragic figure because he's the priest who spent his entire life with the conviction of a religion that's not true. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, beautiful little moments also at the end where... He's hiding in the room while that guy is standing there looking at himself in the mirror and still doing prayers out of his book. Prayers based in a concept that he knows to be a lie, but he's turning to it for some kind of inner strength and asking for help. And in a way, 
he sort of gets that confirmed because he does help to stop things, at least temporarily. Yeah. Once again, we should mention that, you know, we, we, you know, we're in the middle of that apocalypse trilogy we were talking about. So these last three movies on our list are all the movies that Carpenter has always gone on record as saying that each of these movies, it is the end of the world. It is inevitable. When the thing starts, for instance, that dog's running, like he always said, it's like there's no stopping it now. That that thing is going to destroy the world somehow. And in Prince of Darkness, and you certainly see by the end of the movie, it doesn't seem like anything they do will amount to anything other than altering the events of the apocalypse. But it, it's supposed to be that things are inevitable. Yeah. And yet he seems to have a momentary triumph uh, that just seems all the sadder for the fact that it's not going to last. But he he's still relying on this false faith and then i guess you know not to get too heavy about it but i guess in a way it it touches on things that i'm sure people that are more spiritual might find comforting too which is okay so the whole thing is a lie but the faith part doesn't necessarily that part's not a lie the strength comes from you yourself it doesn't matter and so he turns to that for strength and he's actually one of the heroes at the end of the movie yeah, and when he's on the gurney, like the last uh, final, his final shot, where he's you know the, with the the uh, about to be put in the ambulance. Yeah, um, he's very very pleased with himself. He's he's you know he knows that they've done right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you, I guess you could say that in a weird way, his maybe his faith is restored at that point. I think you know, even knowing yeah. that everything is a lie. I think it is. I think that shot is supposed to be. He has this really like beatific smile on his face. Yeah, like, he does. It's like, well, okay, because he knows the truth now. He knows what the structure of things really is, and yet he also just basically got proof that if you believe, things can work out. So, yeah, I think so. I think I think it is. It's a pretty deep movie, actually. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people overlook this movie, and it's never been, you know, I don't know, maybe it's growing a little bit now, but it seemed like it never would reach like a top list. Well, and there's a really interesting comment that Carpenter makes in one of those special features where he talks about how he'd been doing all these big studio films. And this was the first time he had complete control over a movie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we'll see, as that goes on, maybe that was not necessarily a good thing for Carpenter. Yeah. Well, of course, it also has to do with aging and, you know, eventually reaching a point where you've passed. And we talked about this off mic a little bit where even the greatest of filmmakers, you, you might just eventually reach a point where you pass your prime. You know, and you no longer have the same sharpness or energy as you once had. Everybody reaches that point, and maybe he just eventually runs out of that same level of energy that creates so many astonishing and classic films. But certainly at this right. point, you could still argue that that's, that's very much there. And there's so much in Prince of Darkness that's really worth checking out. It's really um, has an absurd level of humor at times, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that weird mix that often comes up in a lot of his movies. And yet, uh, Alice Cooper's appearance is strange. <laughs> um, and I also noticed, uh, you know, that at one point, uh, the guy who gets the bicycle stabbed through him right. is listening to an Alice Cooper song. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um but, uh, yeah. And it, we were, we talked about this off mic, uh, prior to the show, we were talking about that, uh, Carpenter movies, typically will at least have a few examples of oddball lines right. that kind of come out of the blue. They don't seem 
to make much sense. Sometimes uh, they've been in a lot of the films that you know we we've actually already discussed here. Right. Uh, but Prince of Darkness has several examples of that, where it's either something that's just completely inappropriate <laughs> that someone says, like the <laughs> you could almost pass for Asian line or whatever. You know, there's just yeah. weird little comments. Well, his character made. is just a catalog of racially <laughs> insensitive humor. <laughs> Uh, he always makes me uncomfortable in that movie. And I know it's like, it's written that way. Uh, yeah. and his character is supposed to be that way. And actually, of course, by the time you get toward the end, the whole idea is it's, he's using it as a refuge for dealing with the insanity of what's going on around him. But yeah, right. it's a weird, he's not a likable character. Not really. No. no. And yet he's one of the ones that survived. And yet he makes it. Yeah. <laughs> um, talking about those lines and we, back to the fog that's one of the all-time classics <laughs> anybody that's a fan knows the weird moment where the kid um and comes to his mother adrian barbeau and asks if he can have a stomach pounder and a coke <laughs> and she says uh, not until after lunch i think i forget how that part but and and like for years like and like tons of people and then eventually with the advent of the internet i was googling it frequently it's like what the hell does that mean um eventually get to the blu-ray and all the uh, interviews with everybody tommy wallace and all that and lo and behold it doesn't mean anything it doesn't come from anything it's a weird thing that seems to have no meaning that people can't figure out what it is people have uh, created all sorts of associations that don't really exist and it's just like what the hell is that line there for? <laughs> but that's part of carpenter's charm he's always yeah. got that this is g2v Greetings, I'm Kevin Lauderdale, and the name of the show is It Has Come to My Attention. Once a month, I spend just a few minutes drawing your attention to genre-related things that may have slipped under your geek radar. Classic movies finally out on DVD or Blu-ray, not-so-well-known books, audio, graphic novels. Not the sort of stuff you'll see on Amazon's front page, but the sort of treasures that are buried several clicks in under the recommendations carousel. About half the time I mention things for proper geek parents or put into the hands of proper geek kids. And sometimes I even do a funny voice or two. All of this for free as part of the Chronic Rift Network. Available on iTunes and at chronicrift.com. Well, our final film in this little roundup of five for this particular episode is also the final film in Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy. It is a movie that brings us into the 1990s. And towards what we might argue is coming to the end of his most effective period of his career. But we could certainly argue about that at another point with other films. And I have to be perfectly honest in saying it's the movie I'm least familiar with, not only of all of these, but of almost any other Carpenter movies. I've only ever seen it all the way through once. And I do not have a very strong personal opinion about it because I came to it late and have never really delved into it much more, but do definitely want to see it again. That's in the mouth of madness. This one will drive you absolutely mad. The riots began because the stores could not meet the demands of Sutter Kane's novel, In the Mouth of Madness. Kane disappeared two months ago without a trace. The guy that writes horror books. You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. I need to know if he's alive or dead, and I need that book. It's a setup. It's just a, I just have to work out how it's set up. Kane's writing has been known to have an effect on his readers. See this? It's a map. This whole thing has been staged. You just get out. 
This is not reality. It's all happening for real, Trent. <sighs> Which its title and its premise and so much in the movie clearly derives from Lovecraftian source material, although it isn't an adaptation. Right. Um, but it certainly plays off of that association. And like I said, it's the third in our uh, The World is Definitely Ending films from Carpenter. But you're far more familiar with it and have uh, stronger opinions. I think it's more you for this. Well, I'll just say that uh, I the first time I saw the movie, I didn't know what it was going into it. Uh, apart from the fact that it was a Carpenter film and, and I certainly knew what the ca- who, was, who was in the cast. Uh, but it's a really, really interesting meta film. And you kind of have to see that to understand what that means. But it's a type of film that sort of breaks down the fourth wall, then tears down the fourth wall of the fourth wall. <laughs> and by the end of it, you realize this is all we're all in sort of this, you know, in, in, we're in the mouth of madness, so to speak. It's a really interesting uh, journey where it begins in very much a Lovecraft fashion uh, with a visit to a, a man in, a, in a, an asylum uh, or in a psychiatric hospital, if we want to be a little more PC. <laughs> and this is uh, da- David Warner plays this doctor who's, who's speaking with uh, John Trent, uh, who is uh, played by Sam Neill. Now, Trent is an insurance investigator, and basically what winds up happening is he goes off to investigate uh, this author named Sutter Kane who's gone missing. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's all sorts of craziness that begins to spring up as he goes investigating this, uh, this missing guy. And, and when he goes into this uh, weird town that has very Lovecraftian aspects to it... Um, and, uh, but eventually, uh, Sutter Kane is played by Jurgen Prochnow... And, uh, it's, a it, it's, it begins to, you know, it, this is another one of those movies, just like you were saying with Prince of Darkness. If I sat down and tried to explain <laughs> what this movie clearly is about, it begins to, it's almost impossible because it really becomes a, a, a an, an exercise in, I don't know, a plot that transcends normal storytelling. Hmm. Uh, there are hallucinations. There are strange things that happen repeatedly like this. I'm trying to remember because it has been a while since I've watched it. But if I remember, there's a there's like this kid riding a bicycle that he keeps r- running into on the road. Mm. And I think he's kind of like a zombie. There's all sorts of crazy stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But of course, you find when you finally meet up with Proc now or with Sutter Kane, who's basically you're told he's he's an author who's better than Stephen King. Right. Uh, he's got this crazy creature that's attached to his back that's sort of commandeering him (laughs) and there are these weird monsters that that live in his in his uh home like in his basement there's like these big chambers and sam neil's chased by them and also i mean it just and it it just becomes this journey into madness as is typical with a lot of uh, which it should be based on that yeah Yeah. absolutely um and you begin to question what's real what's not real uh, but by, of course, by the end of the movie, the whole point is, is that none of it's real because it's a movie and you're the audience watching this movie. And, and, and actually, at the end of the movie, there's a great little uh, signal where uh, you see Sam Neill in a movie theater watching in the mouth of madness and laughing at the screen at essentially at himself. So mm-hmm. it, that's where it becomes very, very meta and, and kind of transcends it. But um, what I'm a little I, unclear on, though, is why does that qualify this as the third in his apocalypse trilogy what is the end of the world happening then is it the unraveling of reality that's happening in this 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I assume that that's what he's looking at. Okay. Um, even though on the, on the surface, it's more of, as I say, it's very meta. It's the concept being that, well, y- you can't say this is reality because, duh, it's a movie. <laughs> and it's like the, you know, John Carpenter director saying, well, you're watching a movie. Why would you think reality is unweaving or, you know, falling apart? Mm-hmm. Because it's just a movie. And yet by the time, once you've broken <laughs> down all those walls, then it brings up the really frightening question, which is if, the movie is incorporating the concept of the audience watching the movie. How do we know we're real? Exactly. So that that's probably the idea that's working there too, which is that it's right. going so many steps beyond that. There's no level of reality anymore. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, it's, I think it's a really well-crafted film. Um, I like Sam Neill. So I, Me I, too. I really oh yeah. In the role. Um, some really, really nice set pieces, some beautiful creatures, um, practical effects in there. Um, a lot of really good practical effects, uh, some good jump scares, but again, smart ones, not necessarily just cheap ones. And, uh, and then also as a slight extension in in regards to the technical aspects of the film, uh, if you do get the movie, uh, there is a fantastic commentary on the disc, uh, by, I think it's the lighting designer and John and john carpenter is such a gentleman with this he actually is constantly prompting the guy to talk about how he he lit certain scenes and how he he you know did certain shots mm-hmm. and uh he's very cordial and i thought that that was pretty amazing carpenter carpenter commentaries overall though i think are are always entertaining yes we didn't I mean you won't learn anything about the movie if you watch the ones with kurt russell and him. <laughs> no you... you'll find out about their families you'll hear about and everything their kids. else <laughs> But they're always great. And they're Russell always fun. Laughing hysterically, <laughs> and that's all that matters. I I would yeah. listen to those any day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but uh, and what's interesting though is the fog. The one is interesting because it's him and Deborah Hill, at least on one version of it. And again, like you said, the lighting designer they they delve into a lot of technical filmmaking stuff on the fog. And if you're mm-hmm. interested, it's fascinating. If you're not, it might you might think it's one of the more boring ones. I think it's fantastic. But yeah, his he, he's a filmmaker that is always wonderful to see him in it. His commentary on They Live is wonderful because, like you said, he's cordial with the lighting designer. They pair him with Rowdy Roddy Piper on yep. They Live, and, <laughs> and Piper is maybe almost a little too enthusiastic for his own good. But he's so self-deprecating about how he wasn't an actor, and he's constantly like apologizing or saying, "Oh, this wasn't good." And Carpenter keeps going, "No, man, you did a great job. This is, <laughs> this is really it's just fantastic." Uh, it's funny because I was just looking at the uh, Wikipedia entry for um, In the Mouth of Madness and, and this, I don't know, just reading like this one sentence uh, sort of will give you a clue as to as to how this movie is and, and what this movie is like. It says, after giving Trent the manuscript, and this is totally out of context, Kane tears his face open like a piece of paper, ripping a hole that leads into darkness and creating a portal to the dimension of Kane's monstrous masters. Well, there you go. So that's the kind of movie that you're looking at. I, I forgot as well that the In the Mouth of Madness, I believe, is the title of a book that Sutter Kane is writing. Mm-hmm. And and when when they read the book, events in the movie are in the book as well. Mm-hmm. So basically, the book is about events in the movie, and the movie is about events in the book. And the, we're watching the movie that that Sam Neill is watching as well. In the movie that, yeah, you got. Yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> 
So I think it's actually a smarter movie than a lot of people uh, give it credit for. Um, again, I think that's like Prince of Darkness. I'm absolutely going to revisit it too. Because... Yeah, definitely revisit it. And again, as I was saying earlier, a glut of John Carpenter stuff lately, uh, a brand new Blu-ray of In the Mouth of Madness will be released uh, mid-October of 2013. So in just a few weeks from where we're recording this. Mm-hmm. Now, it's it's kind of artificial sometimes when you do stuff like this, so I don't want to give this too much weight. But since we picked these five movies to talk about, one of the things that actually started to occur to me as we're talking about them is that it seemed very much like each movie we talked about was evolving in terms of its level of complexity and the kind of storytelling it was doing from mm. from what basically could be regarded as a very simple, straightforward thriller – to a uh, a take on ghost stories that adds a supernatural component to things that's a little more complicated, to a movie that then ups the ante in terms not only of effects, but in terms of much more deeper horror with the paranoia and fear of something invading a group of people and taking them over, and it's much more intense and uh, quite a roller coaster ride, to then we're up to a movie that creates an entirely new mythology underlying all of human history and the end of the world to then a movie that steps out of the very concept of filmmaking and storytelling and rips open reality. And (laughs) it seems that we really have an arc here of him as a filmmaker getting more and more complex and dealing with deeper and deeper ideas about what makes people afraid and what makes horror work. And yeah. and again, it's artificial, you know, because we, we've also skipped a lot of movies and he's obviously done detours here and there along the way. So it's not perfect, but it does seem like we we seem to pick things that had an arc to them where we've gone. It goes crazier and crazier, more and more meta till it's about the horror that just underlies how storytelling works. Yeah. And what's real. No. I would absolutely agree. And then it's kind of funny that when you look at the films and projects he's done since In the Mouth of Madness, it begins to sort of settle back down. Hmm. So you could, uh, I wonder if you could actually argue In the Mouth of Madness feels like a peak in terms of I, the, the complexity of what he's doing. I, I, I would – yeah, I think it does. I think that is uh, exactly what that movie is hmm. I th- because I think maybe it's at that point he's gone as far as you can really go. What's the very next thing he does after In the Mouth of Madness? Is that uh, Village of the Damned? Okay, which puts him right back in doing a remake again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while uh, we've talked about this off mic, while it's a, a, a pretty good movie and it certainly has some things to recommend it, you could then argue that that means a step back in in terms of what we're following there. Not yeah. not that it doesn't have good things. I mean, it's it's kind of I, I I said this off mic. It's kind of sad to watch. Christopher Reeve now, I mean, he's, he's good in it, but, you know, always makes you sad to see him. And then the next one after that was Escape from L.A., so he basically goes backwards again. Now he's doing a sequel, now, yeah. He's doing a sequel to his own stuff. Right. And and then after that, I mean, it's not even really worth discussing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, so, then it goes to vampires. But. Oh, yeah, no. I don't think we'll do an episode on that. <laughs> no. But yeah, but so I guess that's true then. In a way, you could say in the mouth of Mandis really seems like it becomes a peak of like the the most complicated, the most commentary he's doing on film and horror. It's really interesting, actually, the mm-hmm. way because we didn't. And I guess we should say we really didn't pick these with a lot of like intense forethought, except to say, well, we wanted to do an episode about John Carpenter, who's so important to both of us for 
building a significant chunk of our childhoods in terms of horror storytelling. And at this time of year, Halloween was obvious, but we picked some of our favorites and uh, Prince of Darkness was the one we were both watching again just now. And yet it seems like in picking the ones we picked, we really had these touchstones that have a nice little arc to them too. Yeah. And then when I look at it, you know, where these films fall in my life as well, um, you know, in the mouth of madness, I was 25 years old when that came out. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, for, I I would never have seen, I I've never seen, uh, no, I've never seen any of these in the theater also. That's another thing we frequently uh, have already brought up from time to time. that I think is important too, is when you see a movie in the theater, not certainly totally different kind of impact. All these movies for me were home, whether it was rented on video or, or, uh, seen on cable. I never saw any of these hmm. movies in the theater. The very first time I, and, and is going all the way back to the beginning, we talked about how much I love Halloween and Michael Myers. The very first time I ever saw a Halloween movie in the theater was Halloween four. Wow. And I was so excited to see that <laughs> because after Halloween three, it's like, it took years to become such a fan of Halloween three that I am, which I'm huge. Um, but of course back then it was like, Hey, no, Michael, what's that about? And then, uh, and then Halloween four comes along and it's like, it's the return of Michael Myers. Like you're kidding. It it was that idea of like, well, we're never going to see Michael Myers again. Right. And I went to see that in the theater. And the first time you hear that music kick in again, it was just like, this is fantastic. Um, so the impact that that movie had on me and the character is part of why I'm such a big fan of horror in general. Thanks for listening to this episode of the G2B Podcast, part of the Chronic Rift Network at chronicrift.com. Visit our official website at g2bpodcast.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Join our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at G2B Podcast. And you can always email us at contact at g2bpodcast.com. Our show music is by Brian Boyko and Frank Nora. 